Paul says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we just humbly pause and as always pray that you would do in us whatever it takes to just prepare us to the greatest extent to hear what the voice of your spirit, your spirit of truth would say to us this morning. Lord, we don't want to hear wiser, persuasive words of a man. We want to experience the demonstration of your spirit and your power speaking to and connecting directly with our hearts individually. Lord, we believe your word is what you said inspired and that it's profitable and make it that for each one of us this morning. Lord, you know what we're asking and what we mean and we pray that you would keep us attentive and make us alert and anxious to hear what you want to say to us this morning and that we would be listening and responsive to your truth. Speak to us, Lord, by your Spirit's ministry, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, perhaps you've had this said to you before, or maybe you have said this to someone else. It's up to you. You can believe whatever you want. It's up to you. You can believe whatever you want. The important thing to remember is that we have to know, however, that what you choose to believe, what I choose to believe, not only affects how you live now, but more importantly, that also determines your eternal destiny. And that's what this text particularly is addressing. You notice the repetitious mentions of belief in the truth or believing the lie. Belief in the truth, believing the lie, not receiving the truth as compared to embracing the lie. Now, the background of where we're at this morning in our text, Paul has just been speaking in the prior verses to us. We saw it last time about the coming revelation of this personage, this man called Antichrist. One of the titles, probably the more popular title given to him in the Bible, this evil coming world ruler who will be revealed who will rise to power at a certain point in time, particularly during the seven-year period of tribulation that happens on this earth for those who are left behind after Jesus has raptured or removed the church, true Christians, saints off of this planet, as 1 Thessalonians 4 describes, how we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we talked last time a little bit about the activities of this lawless one, the Antichrist, this man of sin. The Bible gives him many different titles, this coming world ruler, and how at that time, after the church is instantly removed and the earth and the world enters into the seven-year period of tribulation, 
how he'll initially come on the scene and ascend to a place of global rulership, of being a world ruler, and originally will be perceived as this wonderful, brilliant, diplomatic leader who brings all kinds of solutions to all the world's problems. And understand the world will be longing and yearning. The world already is yearning and longing, is it not? Economically, militarily, uh, you know, in every way to, to find some form of peace and unity so that we don't implode and self-destruct already. And imagine that all the more as millions of people disappear from this planet, as economies collapse, as the world is destabilized in a way it has never been before, how the world will be yearning for somebody, whatever. We will compromise, make any concessions as you can solve the world's problems and bring peace and harmony back on this planet somehow which will set the stage as the world's already being groomed for for this man this called the antichrist to be thrust into a place of world rulership where he will dominate as a world dictator and originally as i said will will bring solutions to many different problems we talked about it last time allowing israel to rebuild their temple somehow bringing peace in the middle east in a way that no one else ever could before establishing a one world economy a, even a one world religion at one point a one world government functioning together but yet halfway through that seven year period of tribulation the antichrist then reveals his true satanic colors. Last time we saw that he was referred to as the man of sin, the son of destruction. Look back in verse 4. It tells us what he's going to do midway through that tribulation period. Ultimately, he's going to reveal who he really is. It says he will oppose, verse 4, and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, which has been rebuilt at that time showing himself that he is God. So he will claim to be divine and he will demand forcibly that all people give worship and allegiance to him. In fact, you won't be able to buy or sell or do anything or potentially lose your life if you choose not to worship and give your allegiance to the Antichrist as he proclaims himself as God in the midst of the rebuilt Jewish temple. Now, as we go on this morning, it now describes beginning in our ninth verse where we pick it up, some further activities of this man called Antichrist, this world ruler. It says, verse 9 of him, the coming of the lawless one is according to the, notice, working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. So take notice how the Bible indicates there that the Antichrist will be operating under the direct power and the direct control and really with all of the empowerment of Satan himself. It indicates that to us in verse 9, referring to him here as the lawless one, and that's because just like Satan himself who disregards everything of the law of God, this man will do exactly the same, but will be operating under the supernatural power and direction of Satan himself in order to accomplish Satan's works on the earth at that time period. Notice his activity is characterized, look at it in verse 9 there, it's characterized by the working of Satan. That's how the Bible characterizes what he will be doing, the working of Satan. Now, again, who is Satan? Well, the Bible tells us that Satan is a created angelic being 
who at one time was around the throne of God, worshiping God with all the other angels. It seems that he was among even some of the highest ranking order of the angelic realm at one point in time, which means he had and still possesses all the supernatural powers and capabilities of a supernatural angelic being because he was created as a supernatural being. So because of that, he does possess capacities and powers of a spirit being. And Satan, of course, in pride, we know the Bible teaches, exalted himself against God, wanted to receive the worship that God received, to be like God. And because of that, in rebellion against God, coerced other angels, one third, it seems, of the angelic realm, to come after him in allegiance to give him worship that God should receive. And in that rebellion, God judged him and he was cast out of his heavenly position. He lost his role and at that point became what he is now, this fallen, dark, angelic unclean spirit a demonic spirit who has other demonic spirits that function together with him and satan jealously opposes and wants the worship that god receives satan hates humanity you and i because we are the object of god's affection and who god desires and created in his own image and wants to have a relationship with and as a result of that he actively seeks to deceive and to destroy humanity and particularly their connection to god that's what his agenda is that's what he's after and he will find any little subtle means nuances excuses reasons all types of dynamics to purposely zero in on anything he can do to destroy a human being's connection to god because he despises god being worshipped and he hates humanity who god wants to have relationship with and ultimately his greatest attempt to do this the bible showing us will be in the personage of this man called antichrist who is a pseudo savior and in a sense antichrist this man in some ways is somewhat like satan incarnate Satan in the flesh, if you would, embodied and at work in the fullest measure on this earth. In fact, Revelation 13.2 says this regarding Antichrist. It says, the devil gives him his power, his throne, and his great authority. Showing and reminding us that the devil or Satan does indeed have a measure of supernatural power to use. Because he gives this man his power, his throne, and his authority. The devil does, we must realize, hold demonic authority and control over certain things. He does have supernatural capacity to have rulership over some spirit beings and obviously over some human beings as well. Jesus himself, who actually created him at one time, refers to him in the Gospels as the ruler of this world. The idea is the ruler of this fallen world system under the curse of sin. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, meaning the, the prince, the reigning prince over the spirit realm in some ways. The Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And Paul calls him as well the God of this age who blinds the minds of those who choose not to believe. So the Bible is very clear that Satan has power, authority, supernatural capability. As Antichrist comes on the stage, as he emerges onto the scene as this world ruler, Revelation 13 says the devil is going to give him 
his power. He's going to give him his authority and give him his throne. So I want you to envision a human being completely possessed and empowered by Satan. And all the wickedness and authority of the scheming attributes of the devil, a man completely empowered by such, that's what it means here in verse 9 when it's telling us the coming of the lawless one will be according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Literally, he is going to be empowered satanically. Satanically empowered so that he can, it says there in verse 9, look at it, orchestrate and perform signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, supernatural miracles. But I want you to notice, please don't miss in the end of verse 9 there, notice it says he's going to perform lying wonders. All signs and lying wonders. The purpose of the miracles and supernatural activity that Antichrist will perform under the power of Satan, notice here, it's not to convince people of the truth or the power or the reality of God, but in fact, it's the exact opposite. It's to lower people's spiritual guard so that their reasoning capacities are diluted and actually to seduce people into following a lie. He's going to perform miracles, signs, and lying wonders, supernatural phenomenon in such a way that people's guard is lowered and their reason is deceived so that they can be more easily misled and pulled away from God. So that they will choose instead to believe the lie and follow the Antichrist instead as divine and it's marked by the working of Satan, supernatural deception. Again, the reason to get people to accept lies. Now, for you and I this morning, what can we take away from that truth of Scripture? That the Bible tells us that about Satan and his power and ability and his authority as well as the Antichrist operating in that way, you know, using lying signs and wonders as a part of his deception for people. Well, I think certainly one thing is this. Obviously, we need to humbly recognize that not all miracles, not all signs, not all wonders and phenomena that happens is automatically from God. Because the Bible says, not me, the Bible says that the devil, Revelation 13, read it there as well, that the devil as a supernatural being has power and authority to accomplish as well signs and wonders. So not everything that seems or is supernatural or miraculous indicates that it's automatically from God himself. Because here we read the exact opposite, that Satan possesses some supernatural power and he uses it at times to deceive. And we need to realize one of the deceptive tactics of the devil is to use supernatural activity, miraculous signs and wonders to lower people's guard, to draw them into deception, to bring people into error, to deceive them. Again, someone performs some supernatural phenomenon and then attached to it is this erroneous lie. Something that contradicts scripture or contradicts the clear revealed truth about God or Jesus to get people to give worship or allegiance to someone else or to something else. Then you try and perhaps caution someone or warn someone, what are you doing, man? What are you following? And the statement comes in reply, you don't understand. It's a miracle. A miracle happened. This has got to be God. It's a miracle. Not necessarily. 
Deuteronomy 13, even prior to the New Testament writings, already warned in the Old Testament that if someone performed a sign or a wonder and sought to get them to worship another god, they were to stone that person and realize that they were someone that was dangerous and unhealthy. So we need to remember this. Very important. And I, you know, not only in our day and age today, but as we move closer and times wax worse, we need to realize this truth lest we allow it in some way to cause people to be deceived in our midst to realize that Satan can deceive by supernatural phenomenon and he will gladly say, oh, but there was this brilliant light or this person came back from the dead or some miracle happened. Look, you think Satan wouldn't gladly heal some illness to destroy and kill somebody's soul? I thoroughly believe he would. He's not a very good worker if he doesn't. Yes, God can do miracles, but we must realize that we always need to test the spirit and validate what's behind what's going on. Notice Satan's work, it says in verse 10 as well, through the Antichrist will include and encompass, verse 10 says, all unrighteous deception, lying signs and wonders. And he says, verse 10, with all unrighteous deception, underline, I have it there in my Bible, the word all all unrighteous deception. I think the emphasis is this. Every possible form of deceiving mankind will be in operation during the time of the Antichrist. One translation renders this. He will use every kind of wicked deception. In other words, the devil and the deceptive powers of Satan, who the Bible says is the greatest deceiver, scripture says that he's able to deceive the whole world. They will be a peak performance at the time of the Antichrist. All unrighteous deception, all stops will be pulled out and at peak performance, the greatest deception ever will come to pass, making it extremely difficult not to be deceived, making it extremely difficult not to be deluded and to be misled and fall into spiritual deception. Jesus said of the time of the tribulation, Matthew 24, Mark 13, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. Jesus said that, that this will be a mark of the latter days. So therefore, it's very presumptuous and quite foolish to think you're going to outwit the deception of Satan. And we hear people say this kind of stuff. Well, I'm just going to wait. I, you know, I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to get saved in the tribulation. I, I, I'm just, well, I'm, I'm, I need to have a little fun now or whatever. Listen, that's a very presumptuous, and I have to be honest, somewhat foolish. The idea is you're trying to say you're going to outwit Satan. You're going to outwit the deception. That's a very dangerous place to be. It says all unrighteous deception will be coming to pass. Look how verse 10 goes on. Among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So, again, we see, notice, who will be subjected to this powerful working of Satan with the lying signs and wonders? Who will be exposed to all unrighteous deception? It's going to happen to the unbeliever left behind after the rapture who is on this planet still stuck in the midst of the tribulation period, it describes exactly who will be subjected to all this unrighteous deception. It says it will be happening among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Again, whenever the Bible speaks of those who perish, it's referring to those who are on their way to eternal destruction, on their way to hell, to the lake of fire. Jesus said, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have everlasting life. So when the Bible speaks of those who perish, it's referring to the unconverted, to the one on their way to eternal judgment. And notice why they're being exposed to this. It says, verse 10 there as well, because they would not receive the truth. You see it there in verse 10? This is why, because they would not receive the truth, indicating they had opportunity to choose. They had adequate and ample opportunity, but they rejected the truth. They heard the truth. They were, they were exposed to the truth. It was presented to them. They had the option to receive the love of the truth or reject it and instead have the love of themselves or the love of some other kind of idea for how they thought that they would be made right with God. And those he's referring to here are those who chose not to receive the truth. Therefore, the idea is they brought this judgment upon themselves. There's complete accountability for it. It wasn't that they didn't have the opportunity. The truth was presented to them, but they, it says, would not receive. They wouldn't receive the love of the truth. They chose to reject it. They chose to say no to it. So as a result of that, they're responsible, therefore, for the judgment they brought upon themselves. And please notice, don't overlook it there in verse 10, that if these individuals had received the truth, they could have been saved. They could have been spared. Look at God's heart there. They did not receive the love of the truth, verse 10, that they might be saved. The Bible is trying to say this was not what God wanted. Again, God loves us all. His heart is that all men be saved. God wants to spare people, not only from the time of the tribulation, but he also wants to spare people from eternal damnation and being cast into the lake of fire and cast into hell as a result of their rejection. 1 Timothy 2 says it this way, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of, listen, God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Again, God's desire and God's you know, presentation of the giving of his son, God has made a way possible for anyone to be saved. God has made a way through Jesus Christ coming to this earth. Again, God our Savior, God who we sinned against, who we rebel against in all of our failures and shortcomings, and we all sin and fall short, that very God became our Savior through the person of His Son Jesus who came and lived the sinless life that we cannot live. And then He stepped in our place as the guilty one and took our punishment. He took the pain and the punishment of the wrath of God so that we could be freed from that having died in our place and risen again. And now Jesus, the mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, offers the opportunity by coming to him and letting him save us and surrendering to him and receiving his forgiveness for anyone to be saved. And the Bible says that's God's desire. God desires his will, his desires that all men would be saved, that all would come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says in John chapter 1, to as many as receive Jesus, he gives the right or the power to be children of God. To as many as receive him. But you have to receive him. You have to receive the love of that truth. You have to make that truth your truth. Salvation is a free gift by grace through faith, but it comes through the person of Jesus. Again, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we must be willing to embrace Christ Jesus as our Lord, 
to say, God, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I failed you. And none of my righteousness or religious works, none of that could atone for what I've done. That's why you sacrificed your son. And I'm a wretched sinner. And Jesus, I believe you did that for me. Save me. I submit to you, Jesus. Be the Lord of my life. I choose to follow you. And as we exercise that faith and receive the love of that truth for ourselves, then we're saved from sin's penalty. Then we're saved from the power of sin reigning over our life. Again, God has made it possible and available that all men might be saved, yet God will not violate the free will of human beings. He created us with free will. He's given us the capacity to choose. And because God is righteous and God is loving, he will not violate and take away our choice. He allows us the freedom to choose. And sadly, some, the Bible says, will reject his offer of salvation. They will hear the truth, hear God's terms, but they will not receive it because they love themselves or they love their sin or they love some other idea of what it means for them to be able to live how they want to live in darkness rather than coming to the light, which is Jesus Christ. And the sad thing is the Bible says they refuse to believe, they refuse the love of the truth, which had they only done, they could have been saved. They might have been saved. So the Bible lays this sobering reality. Notice verse 11 goes on, it says, and for this reason, stop right there, and for this reason, the Bible is saying, look, there's a reason people are condemned. There's a reason that people fall into what they fall into spiritually, eternally, because they did not receive the truth. It's for this reason, for that reason that they did not receive the truth. Verse 11, God will send them strong delusion that they might believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness so notice this speaks here verse 11 and 12 of how god will during the tribulation and in the midst of the time of the deception and powerful working of antichrist god will give such individuals left behind it says here in a sense god gives over to them their own desire they did not want to receive the love of the truth they rejected jesus christ and the truth that he brings to them so god will now give them over to their own desire god grants them their own choice and in a sense if you would honors their decision he gives them what they want gives their preference and lets them have what they have chosen already for themselves it says here in our text verse 11 that god will send them such individuals strong delusion that they should believe the lie in other words, God, uh, this is what I see, God pulls back the protective restraint spiritually and in a sense, in that hour, allows such individuals to be fully exposed to the active working power of all misleading error of Satan's deception. And he pulls back the restraint, which includes the working of Satan and all lying signs and wonders and all unrighteous deception so that minds and reasoning of such people who rejected Jesus are deluded and very easily deceived so that it says there, look at the text, so that they believe, it says, the lie. That they believe the lie. Now, interesting, what is that? What is the lie? So that they believe the lie. Well, it could be a reference to verse 4 where the Antichrist claims he is God. 
and he should be worshipped. So in context, maybe that's what the lie is that they'll believe. Or perhaps it's just an indication of the lie of the devil from all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the very first lie, where the devil shows up in the Garden of Eden encouraging mankind to reject God's will and God's plan and God's rulership over their lives and instead inciting and seducing the very first two human beings to instead to be self-governed, to be their own God over their own life and to cast off the rulership and the authority of God and his will, but instead to let the subtle voice of the devil encourage them to enthrone self and to live, in a sense, worshiping self and self-desire and to refuse the rulership of God and Jesus. But notice verse 12, the sad and sobering eternal consequence of doing that. It says that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Such individuals, the Bible says, will be condemned. The idea is eternally separated from God, cast into what the Bible calls the lake of fire. Revelation 20 says, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It never ceases. It's not temporary suffering. It's not a little bit of pain and then you just you know, disappear and are burned into nothing. No, it is continuous, conscious, forever and ever pain and torment and suffering. This is what they will be subjected to as a result of that rejection. And again, remember, I must emphasize those who will be eternally damned, the Bible says it's for this reason. The reason is, it's emphasized again there in verse 12, look at it, they did not believe the truth. In other words, they chose not to believe the truth of Jesus. They chose not to believe the truth. It was their unbelief that condemned them. It was their unbelief of the truth of the gospel message that said, you cannot go to heaven unless you come through the person of Jesus Christ. Your church cannot get you to heaven. Your religious practices cannot get you to heaven. Your efforts to be good versus bad cannot get you to heaven. Your own created religion in your own mind because you want to be God and dictate the terms, that cannot get you to heaven. You can only get to heaven through Jesus because Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And here the Bible says, because such individuals would not in humility, like a little child, which Jesus said however they come, believe that truth. And act upon that truth and faith, their unbelief will cause them to be condemned. Notice they did not believe the truth. Verse 12 ends by saying, but instead, look, had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is, they chose the temporary pleasures of unrighteous or sinful living instead. And look, the Bible says, we know it, sin is what? Pleasurable for a season. I think we have to be very honest. Again, unrighteous living refers to living in a way that's not right or not pleasing to God. It's just referring to you know, living in a way that's sinful. They chose the pleasure of unrighteousness. The Bible says, you know what? That is pleasurable for a season. We have to be very honest with ourselves. Doing what's wrong, it's pleasurable for a time. Sin is fun. Do you want to have fun? Sin. Did you say that from a pulpit? Well, it's true. It's theologically correct. Why would I be allured to sin if it was boring? 
Why would I want to do what was wrong if there was no pleasure or enjoyment in it? Right? We're, we're a pleasure-governed people. We want self-indulgence. We desire fun and pleasure and enjoyment. That's what the Bible says. Sin is pleasurable. It is. It's fun. There's some level of enjoyment attached to doing what's wrong, to disobeying in our conscience what we know the right thing is. Whether it's you know in a relationship with a person or whether it's cheating or lying or stealing or slugging some person when you're really angry or strangling them or whatever. You know, being bitter. Sin's fun. It feels good. But life's about a little more than fun. And that sin is temporary. And when the devil baits the hook of what's fun, he baits it really well because it feels and looks really fun in the moment, but then he never tells you that there's a hook attached to that. That he then pulls back into the mouth and people find themselves then in bondage and misery. And, and, and here's the biggest thing. The Bible's trying to say it's a poor exchange because it requires rejecting the truth which leads to eternal consequence and damnation. And trust me when I tell you, eternal torment is going to be a major regret saying, boy, that really wasn't that fun. I can't believe I esteemed fun and pleasure as the God of my life and doing what I wanted to do over the reality of what was eternally correct. And, and the Bible says this is what happens. People don't receive the love of the truth, but they want to have pleasure in unrighteousness. And, and look, there's one lesson certainly from this passage I think that the Bible is trying to convey to us is this, is it is extremely dangerous. Please hear me. It's extremely, extremely dangerous to reject the voice of God's Spirit. When you are hearing the truth from God and you know God is speaking to you about what is true in some matter, it's very dangerous to reject that. You can reject it, but it's an extremely vulnerable place to put yourself in because when you know God's spirit of truth is speaking to you personally about something in your life and you choose to refuse that rather than to receive it and respond to it, you put yourselves in a very dangerous and vulnerable place to be further and further deceived. To come to a place where you could potentially settle into a condition of believing a lie. God may just ultimately, the Bible shows us, give a person over and allow them to believe the lie and experience what they truly want. This is part of the way of God. God honors free will and at times he will give a person to their own way. The Bible shows that to us on a few different occasions that there may be times when if a person persists and persists that God will just let somebody have what they want. God will grant them their request. He'll honor their free will and in a form of judicial action he will give a person fully over to their rejection of what's wrong and their refusal of what's right. Romans 1, read the chapter. It's a classic illustration of that people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Again, because they want what they want and they don't want to admit they're wrong, they, they, they hold it down. It's like when you want to vomit and you're trying to hold it down. That's the picture. Suppressing the truth in your conscience. And you're just not going to give in to that. And just suppressing the truth. And it says God gave them over to a debased mind. God said, okay, if that's really what you want, I've tried and tried and tried and tried, but there comes a place. I'm not God, I don't know where it is, but I wouldn't play with it. 
where God at times may say, if that is truly what you want, I will give you over to that. And today, if God is speaking to you his truth regarding something in your life, and perhaps you're trying to ignore it or avoid it, can I caution you? Stop. If you know that God is speaking to you about something, respond to that. Be careful because it can lead to a very unpleasant, dangerous thing. Psalm 106 speaks of a time where people rejected God's counsel, tested God, and God gave them their request but sent leanness to their soul. Again, they got what they wanted and it was totally disappointing. It was empty and it was dissatisfying. And above all else, if you're here this morning and you've been hearing a truth about your spiritual condition and you realize or you know you're not saved yet, you genuinely don't know Jesus and you're not ready to go to heaven, then this morning, can I beseech you in the love of God, don't exercise your free will to reject the truth of the testimony of the Holy Spirit telling you that about yourself and that you need to reconcile your eternal condition because if you choose, the Bible says, to reject and not receive the love of the truth, there's no other option other than to believe the lie and the consequences eternally that come along with it. Remember, that's not God's will. He's not willing that any would perish, but he wants all to come to repentance. That is probably why I think the Holy Spirit therefore records verse 13 and 14 right after this section. Because right after a sobering section of the gravity of those who are going to be lost eternally from unbelief, Paul's moved now to celebrate the awesomeness of God's salvation. And how it is so wonderfully available. Look what he says. He goes on verse 13. He says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, because beloved by the Lord, you from the beginning God chose for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the origin, the purpose, the reason for God's plan of salvation. Look at it there in verse 13. Here's the purpose and reason for God's salvation because of his love for us. You see what it says? He calls them there loved by the Lord. Loved by the Lord. Jesus, when he spoke of God's plan of salvation, referring to himself, John 3, 16, you remember what he said? He said, for God so loved the world. He says, that's why I came as his only begotten son, to to provide salvation. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. The root and the source of why the Lord desires to provide a way of salvation and did it originally is because of his love for us. The reason why to this day Jesus and the Holy Spirit reach into people's lives and why he seeks to save each person is because he loves people so much. The Bible speaks in the New Testament of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. And here in verse 13 and 14, it's almost as if in this little summary snapshot, Paul almost gives the process of salvation here. Almost past, present, and future. He covers how salvation deals with our past. Look at it in verse 13 there. He says that God from the beginning chose you. God chose you. Again, our salvation as believers stretches much further back than the day that you got saved. For me, it was July 12th, 1992. But God says, look, that was just the day it happened. God said, I had that on the agenda way before July 12th, 1992 when you made that 
decision to exercise your free will and faith. Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. I was after you way before you. You weren't even looking for me and I already, I already chose you. I said, I'm after him. I'm after her. I want to save them. I want to work in their life. Before we ever prayed that sinner's prayer, the Bible teaches we were already chosen and saved. It's a truth the scripture refers to as election or predestination. And notice we were chosen, it says there, from the beginning. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That is before we were ever born, before anything ever created, God in his sovereignty selected to adopt you as his child. He chose to adopt you that you might know him and spend eternity with him. And look, you can either be blessed by that truth or you can be bothered by that truth. You can let it stress you out or you can let it something that brings joy to your soul. We have to always remember God's choosing of us in salvation is based upon God's character, which the Bible says is that God has foreknowledge, which means that God knows all things before they come to pass. Acts chapter 15 says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. And regarding God's choosing and salvation, we read in Romans 8, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 1 Peter 1 says, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. See, the reason why some people are bothered by the theological concept of election or predestination and get hung up in that is because they think that somehow they can think like God. We don't have foreknowledge. Look, if you had foreknowledge you would be laying on an island somewhere in a tropical environment because you'd be rich and you'd bet rightly on every horse race and every gambling thing because you'd know what would happen before it was going to come to pass. We don't possess foreknowledge. So we can't fully relate to God's divine capacities. Our little finite mind is never going to grasp it on this side of eternity. How does that work? And, and see, what happens is when we become so consumed with thinking we have to reconcile it in our mind, wait a minute, I choose God, he chooses me. God chooses me. Then I chose him. What, what come first? You know, the egg or the chicken? And, and, and we get all caught up in that. And as we try and wrestle it, what we do then is it leads us to make wrong and unbiblical assumptions because then we start to go, well, wait a minute. If God chose people to go to heaven, that's horrible. God chose people to go to hell too then. Well, we all, that would be horrible if the Bible taught that. But that's an unbiblical assumption. That's human reasoning that you're assuming if A, then B has to exist. We're talking about God here. The Bible does teach God chooses us for salvation. The Bible does not teach that God chooses people to be damned. Those things don't exist. The Bible says God chooses in salvation, but it does not say that God chooses anybody to go to hell, that he predestines people for eternal damnation. In fact, we see just the opposite, an open invitation to all. Jesus said, whoever will may freely come. Anyone who comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no ways cast out. Each human being is invited freely and equally to come to Jesus and we're told and commanded that we have to receive salvation and God's choosing and election and salvation does not exclude anyone. Again, so what is it then? God's choice, ours. It's both. And by faith, the Bible teaches, and by faith, we accept divine mystery and we receive it. God's election allows God to be sovereign. Free will allows man to remain responsible and accountable to his creator. 
And from God's perspective, they're like two parallel lines running from now through eternity. And you can let it bother you and try and reconcile it in your mind or you can rejoice. Wow, God chose me? God adopted me? God chose that I have a relationship with him? And see, the doctrine of election is intended to make the Christian feel very secure. To make you feel secure. To not make you fret and worry. God says, look, I picked you. I'm going to finish what I started in you. I adopted you. You're my kid. I'm going to bring you home to heaven because I want to spend eternity with you. So the Lord loves us. He chose us. And the present work of salvation is by His Spirit, it says there, sanctifying us through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth to which He called you, it says, verse 14, by our gospel. So again, this is the ministry of the Spirit in salvation. To be sanctified means to be set apart. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He sets apart our life before we're saved. And He begins to work in our life. Jesus said when He came, He would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And this is that process where the Holy Spirit, He was courting you and wooing you. He was bringing annoying Christians into your path that kept bringing up this Jesus thing again. And making you think, man, am I right with God? What's and, and, and the Holy Spirit was speaking to you and you were hearing a sermon on the radio or you were going to church and listening to some guy talk too long in a blue shirt and you're going, there he is again. Again, man, I'm feeling all weird inside. And Get out of this place, man. What's going on? And the Holy Spirit begins to convince us and to convict us and to cause us to realize, I need Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. And then at a set time, he sends the revelation of how that happens. He calls us, Paul says, by the gospel. He lets us hear that good news of how Jesus loves us and died on the cross for us and is calling us to receive his forgiveness. And boy, well, well, what's our part? We do have free will. What's our part? Well, look at it there in the text. Here's our part. Verse 13. Belief in the truth. That's our human responsibility. And let me just say, I'm glad it's only one thing because I'd muddle up a whole lot more than that. It's one thing, but look, please hear me, that's utterly important. Free will is involved. There must be a decision to believe the truth, to accept the claims of the gospel, to exercise faith in the middle of the salvation process. It says this in Romans, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever believes upon him will not be put to shame. But notice the emphasis on belief. A person must believe the truth. They can choose to reject the truth. The Bible just taught us that. But our role is to believe the truth, to act upon it by putting our faith in it in a way whereby we exercise our faith in Christ, ask Him to save us, receive His forgiveness, and choose to follow Him as Lord by the faith we exercise in our heart towards Him. And notice the future culmination of this glorious salvation, Paul says. It's for the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul peers ahead to the ultimate outcome of salvation as being united then with our Jesus, who saved us, and who's led us as our Lord through this difficult, fallen, sinful world that one day we're going to share with Him in all of His heavenly glory. We're going to, as co-heirs with Christ, experience the presence of God, the presence of Jesus, and all the glory that Jesus possesses we're going to obtain. 
You know, that's why Paul, understanding how great the heaven glory is, said in Romans 8, 17, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. See, the Christian needs to be reminded of that sometimes. Man, I'm watching these people. They're rejecting God, rejecting the truth. They seem like they're having a lot of pleasure in their unrighteousness. Are you kidding me? Do you know what awaits you? The glory of Jesus Christ, the obtaining of that glory. And the Bible says your present suffering, Christian, it's not worthy to be compared with the glory that waits for you. The trade-off is incredible. It's like trying to compare a, you know, a happy meal with the best filet mignon. It's not even they're going on the same chart together. What are you suffering this morning? What are you struggling through? If you're in this world, I promise you one thing, you're struggling with something. You're suffering through something. But the wonderful thing is this. This is a good investment. You're believing the truth and you're going to obtain the glory of Jesus. Hey, I'll leave you with this final thought this morning. The option is yours. You can believe whatever you want. But consider the outcome. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray.